Saturday. It's your boy, Jason Whitlock, filling in for my main man and your main man, Uncle Jimmy, who's still battling COVID. He's doing okay. Keep praying for him. He's doing okay. I think he's going to be fine. Uh, But let's start talking about these fire starters and these fires I set this week. On Monday, I opened the week talking about the entertainer, the rapper, the singer, Nick Cannon, and his justification for having seven kids with four different women. And so I tied that all together like, well, hold on, man. What happened to culture? What happened to black culture in the aftermath of Martin Luther King? He left us with a dignified, respectful, positive culture. And look what we got now. Anyway, calls me to go off. Check this fire starter. One of my most vivid memories of childhood is walking down my neighborhood street and telling my best friend Butch that I wanted to be the next Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. It was the mid 1970s. I was eight or nine years old. Me and my older brother and mom lived at 3920 Grand Avenue in a two bedroom flat on the east side of inner city Indianapolis. The 650 square foot apartment cost $75 a month. My parents had divorced four years prior. My mom worked as an hourly employee at Western Electric earning roughly $6 an hour as a factory worker. We were poor. I fit the profile for trouble. Big and athletic, I had a penchant for shoplifting, mischief, and fighting. Luckily, I was tugged by the culture. Dr. King's legacy and shadow ruled the culture at that time. I wanted to be Dr. King. I wanted to wear a suit and tie and command the attention and respect of the world. From my all-black ghetto setting, I dreamed of furthering his dream of creating a society that reflected the kingdom promised by an allegiance to God and America's founding documents. That was the culture that influenced me. That culture blinded me to my impoverished circumstances, inspired me to see a world of limitless possibilities, and demanded that I capitalize on my parents and their generation's sacrifice. Today's culture baffles me, all of it, but most especially the culture corporate media frame as black. Yes, uh, not yesterday, last week, I wrote about celebrity entertainer Nick Cannon's appearance on the popular urban radio TV show, The Breakfast Club. During the interview, Cannon justified his irresponsible seven kids with four women family life by insinuating the nuclear traditional family is a racist, Eurocentric approach to life. He placed all responsibility for his family structure on the women he bedded. Cannon's interview helped me understand how distant I am from modern black culture, which is just an outgrowth of liberal political manipulation through the adoption of critical race theory as a guiding worldview. The culture is secular. It attributes the behavior and outcomes of black people solely to white people. In modern culture, men are weak, women are leaders, black people are not responsible for our destiny, the N-word is a term of endearment, and most importantly, blackness is defined by political affiliation. Joe Biden said it best, you ain't black if you ain't a Democrat. 
I reject it all. I'm not weak. I believe in the patriarchy. I'm responsible for my destiny and outcome. The N-word, regardless of the speaker's color or pronunciation, is disrespectful and harmful. I'm a lifelong non-voter and refuse a political identity. This new culture assigned to black people by Hollywood, academic, political, athletic, and literary elites has demonized the tactics Dr. King used to expand freedom to African-Americans. The strategic, nonviolent, dignified approach of the civil rights movement is now ridiculed as respectability politics. George Floyd, a career criminal and drug addict, has been substituted for Rosa Parks. Skinny jeans worn lower than boxer shorts and wife beaters have replaced suits and ties. I'm an old man struggling to deal with change, but you will never, you will never convince me that respect, a dignified appearance, and a reputation free of criminality will go out of style or lose their effectiveness. Rather than capitalize on the sacrifices of its American ancestors, from Thomas Jefferson to Frederick Douglass to Abraham Lincoln to Booker T. Washington to Dr. King, modern culture looks to exploit and or diminish those sacrifices with a fraudulent, self-aggrandizing imitation. Self-aggrandizement means to aggressively increase one's power and wealth by any means necessary. Modern culture perfectly reflects the selfie generation. The generation mimicking Dr. King, Malcolm X, Rosa Parks, Medgar Evers, John and Bobby Kennedy, they're doing it for power and wealth. LeBron James poses as an activist to enrich his primary employer, Nike. Sean King poses as a black man and activist to enrich himself. The NFL and NBA embrace Black Lives Matter to secure a sponsorship from major global corporations. Nancy Pelosi, Maxine Waters, Stacey Abrams, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris pretend that requiring government-issued identification to vote is Jim Crow 2.0 as a means to maintain their power. Nick Cannon blames racism for his dysfunctional family structure as a means to protect his reputation and rationalize his irresponsibility. Colin Kaepernick took a knee and quit football because he wasn't man enough to accept his uncanny athleticism could no longer mask his immature approach to preparation and leadership. Maria Taylor, she couldn't get the contract she wanted from ESPN, so she claimed Drew Brees, Dave Lamont, Rachel Nichols, and the bosses who fast-tracked her career, yeah, they were all racist. I'm all for power and wealth. There's nothing wrong with pursuing it. But when your tactics mirror Confederate President Jefferson Davis's race-based strategy, yeah, I find it offensive when you cast yourself as the woke Martin Luther King Jr. Now, you're just a bigot promoting a culture that leads to a separate and unequal country. Hope you enjoyed that. I went deep into the history books on Tuesday. I wanted to give a broader explanation 
for what the events transpiring in Afghanistan and America's foreign policy failures and just the chaos that is engulfing America and the globe. And I thought there was no better way to do it than to recap President Dwight Eisenhower's farewell address from 1961. Eisenhower basically predicted everything that we're dealing with today. His speech, his farewell speech, was about far more than just the military-industrial complex. It predicted everything we're dealing with today. Take a listen. America today isn't hard to understand. In his farewell address 60 years ago, President President Dwight Eisenhower explained the destructive path the intelligence community planned for us. His explanation went well beyond expressing fear of a military industrial complex. He warned that secularism, technology, and academia beholden to government would conspire with the military to undermine the greater purpose of our nation. Every failure we're witnessing today, from Afghanistan to big tech censorship, to critical racism theory being taught in our schools, and yes, I said that properly, critical racism theory, it can all be traced to the 15-minute warning Eisenhower delivered on January 17, 1961. The American people have been stripped of their power. A cabal of military, political, technological, media, and academic elites have seized control of our republic under the pretense of fortifying democracy. I call the cabal the intelligence community. The elites who are convinced their degrees, titles, fancy word salads, and wealth make them a superior breed of human being. They practice intelligent supremacy. They grab power in the sincere belief that their ascendancy assures the safety and prosperity of the world at large. They are the most high. Everyone outside this country can easily see America no longer serves a higher power or a higher purpose. The Taliban conquered our military might because they they justifiably rejected the secular values we tried to impose on their country. That is not written or said as an endorsement of Sharia law, the set of Islamic religious rules that deny women equal rights. It's stated to expose the folly of thinking secular values could unseat religious ones in Afghanistan. You can't subdue the greater Middle East with guns and drones, bombs and airplanes. Muslims and other highly religious people do not fear death the way Americans do. Our military industrial complex cannot control the Taliban or end their belief in the patriarchy. They're not trapped in the American-made matrix President Eisenhower predicted six decades ago. Eisenhower's farewell address is too often solely reduced to his military warning. His speech was much more than that. The World War II hero outlined the threat of Marxist political ideology in layman's terms. Here, listen to this part of the speech. Progress toward these noble goals is persistently threatened by the conflict now engulfing the world. 
It commands our whole attention, absorbs our very beings. We face a hostile ideology, global in scope, atheistic in character, ruthless in purpose and insidious in method. Unhappily, the danger it poses promises to be of indefinite duration. To meet it successfully, there is call for not so much the emotional and transitory sacrifices of crisis, but rather those which enable us to carry forward steadily, surely and without complaint, the burdens of a prolonged and complex struggle with liberty, the stake. Only thus shall we remain, despite every provocation, on our charted course toward permanent peace and human betterment. That is President Eisenhower in 1961 telling us that a war is being waged in the minds of Americans. Would we remain one nation under God or would a hostile atheist ideology overtake our religious values and love of freedom? Eisenhower then pivoted to discussing the dangers of an American society trapped by military expense. Listen to this. Now this conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development, yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. Our toil, resources, and livelihood are all involved. So is the very structure of our society. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. From there, Eisenhower urged Americans to be suspicious of the federal government's influence on scholarly research and science. 60 years ago, Eisenhower warned us about the Trust the Science movement. It's as if he knew one day America would provide funding for a lab in Wuhan, China. Here, listen to Ike again. Today, the solitary inventor tinkering in his shop has been overshadowed by task forces of scientists in laboratories and testing fields. In the same fashion, the free university, historically the fountainhead of free ideas and scientific discovery, has experienced a revolution in the conduct of research. Partly because of the huge costs involved, a government contract becomes virtually a substitute for intellectual curiosity. For every old blackboard, there are now hundreds of new electronic computers. The prospect of domination of the nation's scholars by federal employment, project allocations, and the power of money is ever-present and is gravely to be regarded. Yet in holding scientific research and discovery in respect, as we should, 
we must also be alert to the equal and opposite danger that public policy could itself become the captive of a scientific technological elite. Mm. A scientific technological elite. Did you hear that? Public policy becoming captive to the scientific technological elite. Doesn't that sound like modern America? Eisenhower forecasted that Jack Dorsey of Twitter, Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook, and the other Satans of Silicon Valley that run Google and everything would become our rulers. 60 years ago, our 34th president interpreted George Orwell's book, 1984, which was published four years before Eisenhower ascended to the presidency. Two years after Eisenhower left office, President John Kennedy was assassinated. Five years later, his brother Robert Kennedy and the great Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. were assassinated. President Kennedy defied our military commanders in his handling of Cuba. Bobby Kennedy's first presidential campaign speech, conflict in Vietnam and at home, centered on exiting the Vietnam War. Dr. King spoke against the Vietnam War. Is it a coincidence everybody's getting dropped after speaking against the military industrial complex? I'm not wearing a tinfoil hat. Neither was Dwight Eisenhower. The whole world can see, even Taliban soldiers hiding in mountain caves, that our military, academic institutions, politicians, spying agencies, media, tech billionaires, and celebrity class have been corrupted by a blind pursuit of power, money, and fame. Long before we surrendered in Cabal, we surrendered the moral high ground through fear and cowardice. As control of America was stripped from the people, a handful of public executions silenced dissent. No one should be surprised the Taliban embarrassed us abroad. Our intelligence community has been embarrassing us at home for 60 years. Possibly, you just listened to my favorite fire starter. It was so good, on Wednesday, I didn't even start a fire because we had Ted Nugent on as a guest. And Ted Nugent starts his own fires. And so let's move ahead to Thursday when I got back in the lab with my pen and my pad and tried to get this damn fire off. I guess I'm trying to be, there's an MSNBC uh, anchor who loves to make hip hop references. Ari Melber, I think is his name. He referenced Biggie Smalls, I think this week. Maybe that's what I'm trying to do, but I hope I'm doing it more authentically than Ari Melber. But on Thursday, back to my fire starters. I went after Megan Rapino. You know, I don't like her. She, she's got alphabet mafia privilege. BLM, the LGBTQ plus SY, EFG, DLK, XYZ mafia uh, has Megan Rapinoe's back. And no one wants to talk about the criticism that Hope Solo, one of her former teammates, leveled at her. But I did. Take a listen to this. U.S. women's soccer star Megan Rapinoe lives in a protected space created by social media's glorification of the BLM LGBTQ plus 
the Alphabet Mafia. Rapino is untouchable. She can't be criticized or questioned without fear of social media retribution. Her actions or motives are all assumed to be a to be pure and driven by a purpose much greater than your own. That's why most of the mainstream media summarily rejected and or ignored Hope Solo's recent critique of Rapino. On Monday, Solo, a former member of the U.S. women's national soccer team, star goalie for the team once, claimed that Rapino subtly forced other soccer players to kneel during the national anthem. Solo said Rapino almost bullied her teammates to support Colin Kaepernick's kneeling publicity stunt. Here's the audio from the pod- podcast where Solo made her allegations. Take a listen for yourself. But I think the kneeling thing can can be very divisive. Um, I've seen Megan Rapino almost bully players into kneeling because she, she really wants to stand up for something in her particular way. Uh, the purple-haired Rapino is a darling of corporate media. She's engaged to WNBA star Sue Bird. In the sports world, they are the ultimate power couple, a symbol of LGBTQ perfection. Only a homophobe or a bigot would dare question the actions, motives, and agenda of Megan Rapino. So few people do. And certainly no one who aspires to work in the corporate media space would even consider taking Solo's allegations seriously. So few people did. Instead, the immediate reaction was to point out that Solo was booted off the U.S. Women's National Team months before Kaepernick and Rapino began kneeling during the fall of 2016. The inference being, there was no way for Solo to know or see what Rapino did to win the support of her teammates. On Tuesday, USA Today published a story hammering this point. Yep, no way Solo has communicated with any of her former teammates over the last five years. Former teammates don't gossip and chat. I get that Solo said, I've seen. She's speaking loosely during an informal podcast interview. It's easy to misspeak or exaggerate in that setting. Beyond that, anyone who has been following the Kaepernick controversy the last five years knows that many kneeling participants have been bullied. The threat has been clear, kneel or be labeled racist. That's bullying. You don't need, all you need is a brain to see that people and athletes have been bullied into kneeling. Cowboys owner Jerry Jones, he was bullied into kneeling. Jones is like a 110-year-old billionaire. How much easier is it to bully a young athlete who lacks Jones's financial security? What percentage of NFL and NBA players do you think authentically believe in taking a knee during the national anthem? I'll, I'll wait, do the math. What percentage of NFL and NBA players do you think authentically took a knee during the national anthem? percent three I'll give you 15 but it damn sure ain't a hundred it ain't 50 it was all a publicity stunt the BLM LGBTQ plus alphabet mafia stuck a gun to everyone's head and made athletes offers 
they couldn't refuse. Everybody saw what happened to Saints quarterback Drew Brees when he offered tepid resistance. He was shot in the streets like he was Sonny Corleone in the original Godfather movie. We've created a world where the Alphabet Mafia members can't be questioned at all. But you know who can? Athletes like Tim Tebow can be ridiculed with impunity. ESPN, the self-proclaimed worldwide leader in sports, has spent the past decade analyzing and criticizing Tebow's motives and actions, every one of them. The devout Christian knelt in prayer after big plays and touchdowns. He was the anti-Kaepernick long before Colin Kaepernick became a polarizing figure and household name. Tebow's cult of personality was much larger than his on-field performance warranted and a problem for his coaches to corral. So he was a lot like Colin Kaepernick, except he was on the other side of the coin. When your cult of personality is bigger than your talent on the field, it's a problem for coaches. Kaepernick's NFL career flamed out nearly a decade ago. I'm sorry, <laughs> not Kaepernick's. Tebow's NFL career flamed out nearly a decade ago. This year, Tebow and his former college coach, Urban Meyer, resuscitated the Heisman Trophy winner's football career. At 34 years old, Tebow signed a deal to be a backup tight end for the Jacksonville Jaguars. Both Tebow's and Meyer's motives were critiqued and questioned. ESPN's Stephen A. Smith accused Tebow and Meyer of exemplifying white privilege. Other broadcasters thought so little of Meyer's character that they claimed Meyer would give Tebow a regular season roster spot whether he deserved it or not. Just think that through. Urban Meyer reaches the top of his profession in college football. At Bowling Green, at the University of Florida, at Utah, and at Ohio State. You think he got there just giving away opportunities? You think he just did a bunch of favors for people and that's how he won everywhere? Is he really that low character? Is, is it really that easy to win at the highest level? Is he that stupid? On Monday, Tim Tebow was among the first players across the league and by the Jaguars, first people cut by Urban Meyer and the Jaguars, the low character people that were just gonna hand Tim Tebow a job. Stephen A. Smith again claimed white privilege benefited Tebow. Would any of this be said about Megan Rapino? She's white. If Tebow championed homosexuality, atheism, and the Black Lives Matter movement, would any ESPN broadcasters have the courage to criticize him? The U.S. women's soccer team turned in an embarrassing performance in the Tokyo Olympics, finishing in third place. It was supposed to be the dream team of women's soccer, arguably the most talented team ever assembled. Hope Solo strongly insinuated the team failed to win the gold medal because Rapino's agenda interfered with team chemistry. Listen for yourself. And I think that's really hard being on the main stage right now with so many political issues for athletes. There's a lot of pressure. And ultimately, at the end of the day, our number one focus should and has always been to win first. 
Mm, did you hear that? Our number one focus should and should have always have been to win first. Did the U.S. women lose because they were focused on politics rather than competition? Did they lose because Carly Lloyd was plotting her NFL career as a kicker? Were they distracted? All of it's a fair question. It all makes sense. No country has spent more money on developing female soccer players than the United States. This goes all the way back to Title IX. This is a 60-year investment we have in women's soccer. We've invested more money in developing women's soccer players than, any, than all the other countries combined. That's why they never lose until the Olympics until the politics and the agendas and the, the typical things that tear teams and people apart. Had this been the men's basketball team losing, the men's basketball team would have been pilloried 24 hours a day for the rest of the year because they don't have the kind of triple alphabet mafia protection as Megan Rapino. She's female, she's gay and she pretends to worship St. George Floyd. Now that's a fire. Mm. That fire was so hot, I said, let me start another one. And so on Thursday, I came back and lit myself on fire. I had to be transparent and admit that Uncle Jimmy had a mishap on Thursday or, or Wednesday, I'm sorry, had a mishap on Wednesday in his COVID battle. And your boy wet his pants. Yeah, I wet my pants. Didn't handle J Uncle Jimmy's mishap that well. Talked about it on Thursday show. I did fire off one of the greatest lines, I think, of my writing career. When I said that uh, Corey looked like someone who had just been asked to catch a fart with his bare teeth. I got to when I wrote that, I laughed out loud. Wait, l listen to this, how I uncorked that line. Yesterday, COVID won. It wrecked my entire day, disturbing my faith that I will get through this pandemic emotionally unscarred and confidence unfazed. COVID shook my core on Wednesday. On my drive into work, I called to check on my podcast host, Uncle Jimmy. He contracted the virus 10 days ago. He and his two sons, James and Jamil, have been isolating at home. I called Jimmy three or four times per day. Yesterday morning, he sounded relatively strong. We agreed he was doing better than the day before. Jimmy told me, I don't feel like I'm gonna die. He kind of chuckled. We hung up the phone. I stepped out of my car, walked into our studio, sat at my desk, popped open my laptop, and then my phone rang. Jimmy Dodds flashed on my cell phone screen. His oldest son's voice greeted me when I answered. Hey, Mr. Whitlock, dad fainted and landed face first. He's laying on the floor, coughing and gagging. He wants you to come here and take him to the hospital. I nearly fainted. I'm not joking. I nearly fainted. I felt helpless. 
I felt emasculated. I was scared. Trying to calm my nerves and regather the fearless pose I wear every day. I briefly closed my eyes. I'm 54, I'm overweight, I'm scared of COVID. I couldn't think of a way to help my closest friend. I thought of myself. And then I thought of all the people not named Uncle Jimmy who depend on me. I panicked. I stood up, walked in the room where our show's producers work, and wondered which one of them to sacrifice in pursuit of saving Jimmy. I told them what had happened. We agreed we should call an ambulance. I returned to my office and plotted my next move. Should I leave work and go to the hospital? Well, hold on, which hospital would they take him to? Would they even let me inside the hospital given the COVID restrictions? I decided to continue work. I felt useless to help. In this most divided time, when we absolutely need each other the most, nothing separates us more than COVID. We're afraid to help each other. The vaccinated people don't like the unvaccinated. COVID is the most insidious form of cancel culture. We're canceling out each other. Uncle Jimmy and his two boys followed me to Los Angeles to work on my television show, Speak for Yourself. That was like three years ago. I abruptly left corporate media and California in search of creative autonomy and an environment that would more easily allow me to live out my faith-based worldview. I moved to Nashville a year ago, leaving Jimmy and his boys behind to fend for themselves. Eight months later, they moved here to help me start the Fearless Project with Blaze Media. As the kids say, Uncle Jimmy is my day one, my ride or die best friend. COVID knocked him to his knees and all I could do was tape an interview with rocker turned political partisan Ted Nugent and former Fox News host Bill O'Reilly. I felt awful. As soon as I was done, Jimmy Dodds flashed on my cell phone again. Uncle Jimmy's voice greeted me this time when I answered. Can you, can you come get me and drive me from home from the hospital? I closed my eyes again. I thought about being 54, overweight and scared. I once again thought about all the people not named Uncle Jimmy who depend on me. I panicked again. I stood up, walked into the room where my producers work, and asked our 33-year-old, 160-pound producer, Corey, if he would pick Jimmy up from the hospital. I'm not lying, and I'm not proud. Corey looked at me as if I had asked him to catch a fart with his bare teeth. His eyes bugged out. <laughs> his expression sobered me. I returned to my office, called Jimmy. Jimmy, uh, how far is the walk home? Aren't you close? COVID won. I lost. I'm a loser. I'm scared. It's me keeping it all the way real about what happened with me and Uncle Jimmy yesterday. See, have you ever tried to catch a fart with your bare teeth? I've done it. <laughs> 
It's an amazing experience. Anyway, hope you enjoyed your weekend. Come join us on Monday. I'll update you on Uncle Jimmy. I don't think he'll be back, but we're going to keep soldiering on without him. All right, love you guys. Tell your friends to join the Fearless Army. <laughs>